Chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Through Glacier Park, Seeing America First with Howard Eaton by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, The Black Marks. The visit to the executive department of the park was disappointing. I found the superintendent's office in a two-room frame shack, the government warehouse, an old barn, five miles from a railroad, too. That's management for you. Why, O oh gentlemen at Washington who arrange these things, why not at Belton, on the railroad, five miles away? The park extends to Belton. Inadequate appropriations, the necessity for putting the entire heavy machinery of the government in motion for the long-distance control of the park, poor automobile roads, and insufficient rangers. These are the black marks against us in Glacier Park. On every hand the enthusiasm of a most efficient superintendent must contend with these things. That marvel of trail-making and road-building in this vast domain have been done with so little money and encouragement is due primarily to the faith the men closely connected with the park have had in its future. Doubtless all these things will remedy themselves in time, but they make the immediate problem of the park difficult to cope with. The chief ranger must live where he can. No building erected by the superintendent must cost over one thousand dollars. It is not easy in that country of cheap wood and dear labor to build a house for one thousand dollars. And there is always the difficulty of long-distance supervision. In 1914 the former superintendent of National Parks, Mr. Daniels, spent a week in Glacier Park. Last year he was at the entrance, Glacier Park Station, for a half a day and not in the park at all. There are several parks, and it is easy to believe that Mr. Daniels found it difficult to visit them all. But the method must be wrong. It is Washington that must order and pay for each bit of new trail and road building. If Washington does not come to the park, the park cannot go to Washington. There is something lacking in efficiency in a system which depends on across-the-continent supervision. This year, I hope, the superintendent of national parks will go out to Glacier Park, not by automobile, but on a horse, and ride over his great domain. Then I hope he will go back to Washington and arrange for enough rangers to make the park safe and to save its timber from forest fires. Yellowstone Park has soldiers. It is not soldiers, but woodsmen, trail riders, rangers that are needed. Canada, in this same country, has her Northwest Mounted Police. They want real men out there, but the mountains take care of that. The weaklings don't stick. From just north of Glacier Park went a band of twenty-five cavalrymen that I met last year in Flanders. They were rangers, mountain riders. For weeks during the German invasion they rode on skirmish duty between the advancing Germans and the retiring armies. They became famous. Where there were reckless courage and fine horsemanship needed, those men were sent. If we ever have a war, we shall draw hard on the West for cavalry. Our national parks should be able to send out trained skirmishers. Under present conditions, Glacier Park could furnish about a dozen. 
and now that we are criticizing every one may criticize the government it is the english blood in us why is it that with the most poetic nomenclature in the world the indian one by one the historic names of peaks lakes and rivers of glacier park are being replaced by the names of obscure government officials professors in small universities unimportant people who go out there to the west and memorialize themselves on government maps each year sees some new absurdity what names in the world are more beautiful than going to the sun and rising wolf here are almost a dog mountain two medicine lake red eagle a few that have survived every peak every butte every river and lake of this country has been named by the indians the names are beautiful and romantic to preserve them in a government reservation is almost the only way of preserving them at all what has happened look over the map of glacier park the indian names have been done away with majestic peaks towering buttes are being given names like this haystack butte trapper peak huckleberry mountain the guard house the garden wall one of the most wonderful things in the rocky mountains is this garden wall i wish i knew what the indians called it then there are iceberg lake florence falls twin lakes gunsight mountain split mountain surprise pass peril peak that last was a dandy alliterative church butte statuary mountain buttercup park can you imagine the inspiration of the man who found some flowery meadow between granite crags and took away from it its indian name and called it buttercup park the blackfeet are the aristocrats among american indians they were the buffalo hunters and this great region was once theirs to the mountains and lakes of what is now glacier park they attached their legends which are their literature the white man came and not content with eliminating the indians he went further and wiped out their history any government official if he so desires any white man seeking perpetuation on the map of his country may fasten his name to a mountain and go down in the school geographies it has been done again and again it is being done now and the lover of the old names stands helpless and aghast is there no way to stop this vandalism year after year goes by and just as the people connected with the park are beginning to learn new names for the peaks they are again rechristened there must be seven goat mountains here and there is a peak like reynolds peak or grinnell mountain and some others properly named for men intimately associated with the region but reynolds indian name was death on the trail when you have seen the mountain you can well believe that death on the trail would fit it well there are many others take an old peak that the indians have known as old man of the winds or red top plume and call it mount thompson or mount morgan or mount pincho or mount oberlin for oberlin college presumably or mount polack after the wheeling stogie i suppose there is hardly a name in the telephone directory that is not fastened to some wonderful peak in this garden spot of ours 
not very long ago i got a letter a pathetic letter it said that a college professor from an eastern college had been out there this summer and insisted that one of the peaks be named for him and one for his daughter and it was done here then the government has done a splendid thing and done it none too well it has preserved for the people of the united states and for all the world a scenic spot so beautiful and so impressive that i have not even attempted to describe it it is not possible but it has failed to open up the park properly it has been niggardly in appropriation it has allowed its geographers to take away the original indian names of this home of the blackfeet and so destroy the last trace of a vanishing race were it not for the great northern railway travel through glacier park would be practically impossible probably the great northern was not entirely altruistic and yet i believe that mr lewis warren hill known always as louis hill has had an ideal and followed it followed it with an enthusiasm that is contagious and with an inspiring faith the great northern has built huge hotels at three places and at a dozen other locations has built groups of log houses swiss fashion so that it is possible to follow the trails by day and to be comfortably housed and fed each night these hotels built by the great northern are now owned and controlled by the glacier park hotel company at the entrance to the park is the glacier park hotel that cost half a million dollars and is almost as large as the national capital at washington like all the hotels and chalets in the park it is constructed largely of the huge trunks of the trees of the northwest the indians call the glacier park hotel the great log lodge there is everything from a store to a swimming pool fifty miles away in the very heart of the park there is the new many glaciers hotel it also cost half a million dollars there is an automobile road leading to many glaciers the chalet system also built by the great northern has done more than anything else to make the park possible for tourists automobile roads and trails alike touch the chalets and although i am firm in my conviction that it is impossible to see the park properly from an automobile i realize that there are many who will not take the more arduous and sportsmanly method for them then a short trip of twelve or fifteen miles each day takes them from chalet to chalet there are chalets at two medicine lake at cutbank canyon at going to the sun at st mary's lake at gunsight pass at the sperry glacier at granite park and at belton there are inclusive and very moderate rates for various tours to take up a certain number of days a saddle horse costs two dollars a day a pack horse two dollars a day a guide who will furnish his own horse and board himself five dollars a day there are rates from chalet to chalet including a night's lodging in comfortable beds morning breakfast evening dinner and a carefully packed luncheon that are astonishingly cheap for those who wish to go even more simply there are the tepee camps there are three of these at st mary's going to the sun and many glaciers 
They comprise a number of Indian tepees grouped about a central cabin, which includes a kitchen provided with a range and cooking utensils. The tepees themselves are wooden floored, and each is equipped with two single cot beds and bedding. At one of the tepee camps, the charge for lodging is fifty cents per bed per night. The use of the range and cooking utensils is free. At the chalets nearby, hikers may purchase food at very reasonable prices. It is, you see, possible to go through Glacier Park without Howard Eaton. It is even safe, and to those who have never known Howard, highly satisfactory. But there will be something missing, that curious thing called personality, which could take forty-two entirely different, blasé, feeble-muscled, uncertain, and effete Easterners, and mould them in a few days into a homogeneous whole, that took excursionists and made them philosophers and sportsmen. He was hunting in Arizona later on. The party ate venison, duck, and mountain lion, which tastes like veal. We have had several fights with grizzlies, he wrote. They are so strong that they have whipped the hounds and carved them up some in each fight. Country pretty rough and considerable fallen timber, which delays us. I was kicked the other day by a horse when almost up to a bear. The boys thought I had a broken leg or two, so they let the bear escape. He was sending a rider off to the nearest post office and wondering what was doing in the war. Has Port Arthur fallen yet? he inquired whimsically. A hunter who puts the greenest tenderfoot at ease and teaches him without apparently teaching at all, a host whose first thought is always for his guests, a calm-faced man with twinkling blue eyes who is proud of his boys and his friends all over the world, that is Howard Eaton as nearly as he can be put on paper. Wherever he is when he reads this, hunting in Arizona or the Jackson Hole country, or snowed in at the ranch at Wolf, I hope he will forgive me for putting him into print in memory of those days when the entire forty-two of us followed him like the tail of a kite across the great divide. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 Bears It was the next day that I made my first close acquaintance with bears. There are many bears at Glacier Park. Firearms are forbidden, of course, and the rangers kill them only in case of trouble. Naturally so protected, they are increasing rapidly. They find good forage where horses would starve. Mr. Ralston, the park supervisor, saw a she-bear with three cubs last spring. There are no tame bears, as in the Yellowstone. There are plenty of animals. Some fifty moose graze along the flathead. Beavers have colonies in many of the valleys, and industriously build dams that deepen the fords. I remember one place along the Cutbank Trail where the first horses found themselves above the belly in water and confronting a perpendicular bank up which one or two scrambled as best they could. The rest turned and, riding in the stream for a half-mile detour, made the trail again. That was the work of beavers. There are coyotes aplenty. Because they kill the deer and elk, the rangers poison them in the winter with strychnine. A few mountain lions remain. As one can make a whole night hideous, a few are sufficient. 
there is something particularly interesting about a bear perhaps it is because he can climb a tree in other words ordinary subterfuges do not go with him reports vary he is a fighter he is a craven the fact being of course that he is like all wild animals and most humans a bit of each the trip was over and i had seen but one bear at lewis's that last sunday i voiced my disappointment soon after i received word quietly that frank higgins guide and companion on many hunting trips to stuart edward white and other hunters had offered to show me some bears he had horses saddled under a tree when i went back and two men one of them a chicago newspaper artist were with him we mounted and rode up the trail back of the hotel i was dubious for days i had tried to see bears and failed and now to have them offered with certainty by mr higgins made me sceptical i had an idea that under his tall impassiveness he was having a little fun at my expense he was not we went out into the forest to where the hotel dumps its garbage that was rather a blow at first and there were no bears only a great silence and a considerable stench we got off our horses tied them and sat down on a log almost immediately there was a distant crackling of branches one coming now said frank higgins just sit quiet that first bear however was nervous he circled around us i set my camera for one hundred feet and waited but the creature a big black was shy he refused to come out mr higgins went after him he snarled i looked after mr higgins with a new respect and the chicago newspaper men said he was perfectly satisfied with the bear where he was and that enough was enough the bear suddenly took to a tree climbing like a cat he looked about the size of a grand piano urged by mr higgins we approached the tree finally we stood directly beneath he growled the bear of course not frank higgins but my courage was rising wild bear he was but he was a craven i moved up the focus of my camera and took his picture we left him there and went back to the log all at once there were bears in every direction six in all i moved my camera to thirty feet and snapped another they circled about heads turned towards us now and then they stood up to see us better we were between them and supper the newspaper man offered to sketch me with a bear background and he did now and then he would say isn't there one behind me about twenty feet away i would say good lord but he went on drawing i have that picture now it is very good but my eyes have the look of a scared rabbit our friend still clung in the tree the other man had ridden back to the hotel for camera films time went on and he did not return we made would-be facetious remarks about his courage from our own pinnacle almost an hour the sketch was nearly finished and twilight was falling still he had not come then he appeared he had taken the wrong trail and had been riding those bear-infested regions alone he was smiling but pale 
To visit bears in a party is one thing. To ride alone, with fleeting black and brown figures skulking behind fallen timber, is another. Not for a long time, I think, will that gentleman forget the hour or so when he was lost in the forest with bears, thick as autumnal leaves that strew the brooks in Vallambrosa. The poetic quotation is my own idea. What he said was entirely different. As a matter of fact, his own expression was, Hell, the place is full of em. At last, very quietly, Mr. Higgins got up. Here's a grizzly, he said. You might stand near the horses. We did. The grizzly looked the exact size of a seven-passenger automobile with a limousine top and he had the same gift of speed. The black bears looked at him and ran. I looked at him and wanted to. The artist put away his sketch, and we strolled toward the horses. They had not objected to the black bears beyond watching them with careful eyes, but now they pulled and flung about to free themselves. Wherever he goes, a grizzly bear owns his entire surroundings. He carries a patent of ownership. He could have the woods for all of me. The black bears were in full retreat. A hound dog came loping up the trail and caught the scent. In an instant he was after them. Any hope I had ever had of outrunning a bear died then and there. The dog was running without a muffler. One of his frantic yelps changed to a howl as the rearmost bear turned and swatted him. A moment, and the chase was on again. There is only one thing to do if a bear takes a sudden dislike to one. It is useless to climb or to run. Go toward it and try kindness. Ask about the children in a carefully restrained tone. Make the Indian sign that you are a friend. If you have a sandwich about you, proffer it. Then, while the bear is staring at you in amazement, turn and walk quietly away. It was growing dark. The grizzly, having driven off the black bears, turned his attention to us. We decided that it was almost dinner-time, and that we did not care to be late. Anyhow, we had seen enough bears. Enough is enough. We mounted and rode down the trail. Not all game is as plentiful as bears in Glacier Park, or thrive so well. With the cutting up of the range, many of them have lost their winter grazing grounds. Practically the last of the Rocky Mountain sheep and goats are in Glacier Park. Last winter, numbers of these increasingly rare animals were found dead by the rangers. That is another thing the government will do eventually. It may never see that the Blackfeet Indians have a square deal, but it will feed what is left of the game. There is little of the Old West left. Irrigation, wheat, the cutting up of the Indian reservations into allotments, the homesteader, all spell the end of the most picturesque period of Americans' development. Not for long, then, the cowpuncher in his gorgeous chaps, the pack-train winding its devious way along the trail. The boosting spirit has struck the West. Settlements of one street and thirteen houses, eleven of them saloons, are suddenly becoming cities. The railroads and the automobiles, by obliterating time, have done away with distance. The Old West is almost gone. Now is the time to see it, not from a train window, 
not, if you can help it, from an automobile, but afoot or on horseback, leisurely, thoroughly. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 Down the Flathead Rapids The trip was over. I had seen such things as I had never dreamed of. I had done things which I intended to relate at home, but I had caught no fish to amount to anything. On a Monday night I was to take the train east. On Sunday came great tales of the Flathead River, but I had only one more day. How was it possible? It was possible. Everything is possible to these Westerners. I could put on my oldest clothes and fish the flathead for twenty miles or so the following day under the guidance of one George Locke, celebrated trout sleuth. Then, rod and fish and all, I could take the great northern eastern express at a station and start on my three days' journey home. I did it. I can still see the faces of the people in that magnificent club car when a woman in riding clothes, stained and torn, wearing an old sweater and a man's hat, and carrying a camera, a fishing rod, and a cutthroat trout weighing three and a half pounds, invaded their bored and elegant privacy. The woman was burned to a deep cerise. She summoned the immaculate porter and held out the trout to him. He was very dubious about taking it. Thereupon the woman put on her most impressive manner, and told him how she wished it placed on the ice, and how the cook was to fix it, and various other details. It had been a day to live for. The Flathead River does not flow. It runs. It is a series of rapids, incredibly swift, with here and there a quiet pool. Attempts to picture the rapids as we ran them were abortive. We reeled and wallowed, careened and whirled, and always the fisherman guide was calm, and the gentleman who engineered the party was calm, and I pretended to be calm. At the foot of each rapids we fished. I was beginning to learn that twist of the wrist that sends out the line in curves and drops the fly delicately on to the surface of the water. As I learned, so that he did not close his eyes each time I raised my rod, George Locke told of the Easterner he had taken down the river some time before. He wanted a lesson in casting, he told me, and I worked over him pretty hard. I told him all I knew. Then, after I had told him all I knew, and he'd had all the fun with me he wanted, he just stood up in the bow of the boat and put out ninety feet of line without turning a hair. Cast? He could have cast from a spool of thread. In a boat behind us was a moving picture man. For weeks he had always been just behind or just ahead. When the time came to leave the West, I missed that moving picture man. He had come to be a part of the landscape. I can still see him trying to get past us down those rapids, going at lightning speed to gain some promontory where he could set up his weapon and catch our boat in case it upset or did anything else worth recording. He had two pieces of luck on that trip. I had hooked my first trout and was busy trying to throw it in the boatman's face when it escaped. He caught me at the exact instant when the triumph of my face 
turned to a purple rage. And later on in the day he had the machine turned on me when I caught two trout on two flies at the same time. Incidentally, I slipped off the stone I was standing on at the same moment. He probably got that, too. I caught twelve trout in as many minutes from that same rock and furnished the luncheon for the party. I took back loudly everything I had said against the fishing in Glacier Park. I ate more trout than anybody else, as was my privilege. If there were nothing else to it, I would still go back to the Montana Rockies for the fishing in the Flathead River. At noon we stopped for luncheon. The trout was fried with bacon, and coffee was made. We ate on a little tongue of land around which the river brawled and rushed. From the time we had left Lake McDermott, we had seen no single human being. Mostly the river ran through tall canyons of its own cutting. Always it looked dangerous. Generally, indeed, it was. But never once did the boatman lose control. It reminded me of the story Mark Twain told of the passenger who says to the pilot something like this, I suppose you know where every hidden rock and sunken tree and sandbar is in this river. To which the pilot replies, No siree, but I know where they ain't. The train swung on into the summer twilight, past the ruins of old mining towns, now nothing but names, past brawling streams and great deep woods. The large trout was cooked and served. It had been worth the effort. There were four of us to eat it, the moving picture man, the chief ranger of the park, the gentleman from St. Paul who had engineered the fishing trip, and myself. At Glacier Park Station, my wardrobe, which I had not seen for weeks, was put on the train. They do you very well, as the English say, in the West. Everything was pressed. Even my shoes had been freshly polished. A crowd of people had gathered at the station. My supper companions left the train. There were many goodbyes. Then the train moved slowly off. I stood on the platform as long as I could and watched the receding lights. Behind the hotel rose the purple-black silhouette of the mountains, touched with faint gold by the lingering finger of the sun. Stealthy coyotes had taken advantage of the dusk to creep close to the track. A light glimmered from a tent on the Indian reservation. Flat, treeless country, a wagon drawn by tired horses, range cattle that were only shadows. Then night, and the east. End of chapter 9 End of Through Glacier Park, Seeing America First with Howard Eaton by Mary Roberts Reinhardt